I want to start this morning by telling you a story. I'll tell you a story about my year as a high school cheerleader. It's a shock. Shock some of you. Um, when you're in junior high and high school, there are three ways for you to gain popularity, which is the ultimate goal of every high school student. You can have lots of money. You can be rich. That will gain you popularity. You can be attractive. The more beautiful you are, the more popular you tend to be. Or you can be talented. And since I didn't have any money, I didn't come from a family of money, and I wasn't pretty, um, I discovered that I had musical abilities and some athletic prowess, which now is gone. Um, And I began to exploit and develop those things to gain popularity. And, and over the course of my junior high and high school experience, I, you know, I've been on the football team. I've been the lead in the school musicals. I had done several different things. I swam on the swim team. And I, I got bored with football, bored with swimming. And I hadn't really come to the place in college where I embraced tennis yet. Um, and, and I had this driving force in my heart. There was a driving force in me that was a motive for most everything I did as a high school junior, uh, sophomore to that point. Uh, and it was be around pretty girls. Like that was the predominant motive driving force in my life was how do I get to be around pretty girls? Um, the problem that I was facing, so I had this motive. The motive was clear. There was no question about what the motive was. The, the, the problem was they didn't really seem to want to do that much. I wanted to be around them, but they didn't really seem to reciprocate. There wasn't a huge like crowd of attractive girls going, yeah, we want to hang out with Sadie. Just wasn't happening. So it's like, well, I've got to overcome this problem because I, I need to I need to fulfill this motive, this desire, this wish as a as an unregenerate, <laughs> unsaved high school student. And so I came up with a solution. My solution was to join the cheerleading squad. Right, right. It's a group of pretty girls. Yeah, right. They're they're kind of the. I would get to hang out with them all the time. I'll join the cheerleading squad. And I had a friend named Danny who said, "I'll go out with you." We'll, we'll get on the squad together. We can revolutionize the Lovejoy High School cheerleading squad. We'll be able to do some cool stunts. Two guys can throw girls really high in the air, and we can do all kind of cool things uh, if we go together. And I was like, yes, yes. So, so the day of the tryouts came, and I showed up, and like five, literally five minutes before the tryout, Danny flaked out. He said, no, dude, I'm not doing it. And he left the building. And so I was standing there, and the problem for me, now I had a new problem. The problem was how did I get around pretty girls? Problem solved. New problem is I'm the only dude in the room, and that's awkward. And what am I going to do about that? Because now I had already spoken to some of the cheerleaders that I knew, and they were really excited about having a guy on the squad, maybe two guys. So now their expectation is you're going to try out, and this is going to be great. We're going to have a great year. And now there's only me. And so I actually went through the tryout, and I made the squad. It was a very interesting year, my junior year at Lovejoy High School. I gained a little bit of understanding about girls, but mostly not. I I took a lot of hits from kids at school about being gay when it was ironic that the the motive was a ferocious heterosexual drive, not anything else. Um, and, And then I discovered at the end of football season, as things were wrapping up, and I thought, finally, this is over, that that squad actually cheered on through basketball season into the spring. 
So then I had actually, what I had done is committed myself to a full school year, not just half a year. So um, now here, here's, the, here's the best part. Our school colors, you won't see it in the picture, were royal blue and banana yellow. And of course our team uniforms could not be classy royal blue with white trim. They had to be banana yellow. And so I spent a year embracing what we affectionately began to call the banana suit. And um, the short of it is this. I had counted some of the cost of what I was getting myself into, but there was a ton that I did not foresee, that I could not foresee. I didn't know how costly that year was going to be to me personally. Now, there was some benefit. There were some great experiences, but mostly it was costly. And, and it, um, I stuck it out. I finished the year. Then it was done. And I just uh, one year was enough for me. I'm not going to be on the squad anymore. Um, as, I, as I went on towards college, looking to go into a music degree, um, there was this, like, I can either scream my way through college and yell, or I can sing my way through college. And so I chose the, I chose the music. But Here's the, here's the key truth for us this morning and as we go into the next couple of weeks of this series on the cost of Christmas. The decisions we make to pursue something in life are always costly. That's just a universal reality. It's a dictum. It's a truth. It's axiomatic that the decisions we make to pursue something in life are always going to be costly. Sometimes that cost is not so severe. It's not a big cost. It's actually a pretty minimal expense, uh, either monetarily or in terms of our effort, our time. Sometimes the cost is huge, and we didn't know that it was going to be as big as it was. But we pursue things, and then those things have a cost attached to them. And sometimes we have a good idea, right? We, we see clearly on the front end, this is going to cost me, and I think I have a good assessment of that. And sometimes it's surprising, not because we failed to assess it, but because there were unforeseen circumstances that we, we just couldn't anticipate. But no one counts the cost of a path of pursuit without considering the payoff. What is it I'm trying to get to? What is it that I want at the end of this that's going to make all of this worth it, right? What's the reward at the end? And we evaluate whether or not the reward is worth the effort, it's worth the cost to attain it. There's always a cost to pay. There's just no way around it. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And even wonderful things, even great things that we love and things that we enjoy have a cost. I'll give you some examples. Weddings, right? Weddings. Think of the most beautiful, God-honoring ceremony that you've ever been a part of, you've ever been to. And, and, and think about the reception. You're there and there's scrumptious food and there's elegant, uh, the, the wedding party's dressed in elegant attire and that charming country club that hosted that affair, all of that had dollar signs behind it. All of it. All the food you ate as a guest for free, somebody paid for. All the dresses on the bridesmaids, somebody paid for. The tuxedos were rented, right? All of it had cost. Maybe you have fond memories as a, as a child of birthdays. I mean, you blowing out those five precious candles on your fifth birthday and getting that first slice of cake and that present that you unwrapped that is the one you had been longing for. You're so excited to get that birthday present. And all of that costs something, even though you didn't know it at the time. Think about holidays, that amazing Thanksgiving turkey and stuffing we just recently partook in, the one that still is lingering in the fridge and the Tupperware leftovers that nobody's getting to now that it's been two weeks, right? That, 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 think about that real Christmas tree with the lights strung on and the packages under the tree and every cookie that comes out of that oven has a cost attached to it. It all costs something. 
Now that's really kind of a bleak way to look at life. It's something that happens to you. You go from childhood to adulthood. You begin to see the cost more clearly, right? When you're a kid, it's just awe and wonder. And this is awesome. And I want this and I want that. And you don't know what you're asking for because you don't understand the cost. And some things continue as adults to be worth the cost that's involved. And other things we decide along the way, they're not worth the cost that's involved. And we let those things kind of fade out of our lives. I I found this interesting this week. Did you know that there's a Christmas price index, a CPI? And annually, they go out and they price these things. They measure the cost of the 12 days of Christmas. They take everything on the list of the 12 days of Christmas and they price it out and say, how much does Christmas cost this year according to the 12 days of Christmas? The cost of Christmas this year, the CPI is up 0.6% from last year. And that's due to the cost increases for pear trees and gold rings. And no kidding, a wage increase for Lords of Leaping. So we're up 0.6% from last year's CPI. In the, I, 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 this was new to me. I had no idea. In the Western world, Western culture, the cost of Christmas dinner also is going up this year by an average of about 5%. The good news is Brussels sprouts are trending downward. So if you'd like to sub out some of your Christmas meal for Brussels sprouts, you could actually save some money on Christmas dinner this year. Um, I'll, I'll just go for the extra 5% and stick to the stuff that I like, I think. As a culture, Christmas continues to be a value despite its great cost. I mean, when we evaluate its worth, we evaluate the cost of Christmas, we're typically thinking in terms of merchant revenue and consumer debt, right? In fact, Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, we call it Black Friday because uh, as the official first shopping day of the Christmas season, Black Friday is responsible for bringing many merchants out of the red, out of debt, and into the black, into actually have a revenue, right? Like the whole rest of the year, 11 months, They've been operating in the red, and then Black Friday is the thing that puts them over the top into the black, and so it's called Black Friday. Now, that's crazy to me, right? That's crazy to me. Um, But Christmas is far more costly than we know. Christmas is more costly. It was costly for everybody that was involved in that first Christmas, the the one that made salvation possible for us, right? The one that saw the God-man, Jesus, born in a humble stable in Bethlehem on a cold night. There was much cost involved because the value of that event, the payoff of that, uh, what it brought into the world was immeasurable. So the cost was great. It cost Joseph and Mary both some pretty significant things that we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. It cost God the Father something we can't fully even conceptualize as humans. But even those who were just responding to the light, who were responding to what was happening, for them there was cost involved as well. I want us to look at Matthew 2 as we talk about the cost of Christmas. So if you have your Bibles, just flip open to Matthew chapter 2. And we'll have the text on the screen here. Matthew 2, 1 to 12 Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly 
and ascertained from them at what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So let's take this apart just, just for a minute here as we, as we think about the cost of Christmas. These are a group of people we call the Magi, right? That's plural. Um, the, the word is an old Persian word. It's magus. It's magus. And that ties us back into the book of Daniel. Daniel, the prophet, right? We, we derive our word magic from the word magus. It's an old Persian word. And although the Magi are commonly referred to as kings, There's really nothing in the gospel account of Matthew that implies that they were rulers of any kind. The the identification of the Magi as kings is actually linked to some Old Testament prophecies that describe Messiah being worshipped by kings. That would be Isaiah 60, Psalm 68, and then also Psalm 72. And and the Psalm 72 reads this way in verse 10. Yes, all kings shall shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. But that's a messianic era, thousand year reign prophecy, not a first coming prophecy. So, so that didn't, I mean, clearly that didn't happen, right? That, that was not the case uh, here. As the years passed, traditions became increasingly embellished. By the third century, they were viewed as kings. By the sixth century, they had names, right? Whereas they didn't before. Now suddenly they were Bethesaria, Melchior, and Gaspara. I, I don't know why. I feel like they need Italian accent, accents, but that, that's how I read that. Um, some of them are associated with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and thus with the continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe. So, so trying to make that Psalm 72 prophecy fit into the Matthew text, it's like, well, see, the kings of the earth came, except that the king who was in Jerusalem didn't, right? And the Roman Empire didn't. And so um, 14th century Armenian tradition identifies them as Balthazar, the king of Arabia, Melchior, the king of Persia, and Gaspar, the king of India. And so just crazy how tradition just takes a thing and runs with it, right? Um, The ancient Magi, though, were the hereditary priesthood of the Medes and the Persians. And they're credited with profound religious knowledge. And um, there were some Magi who had been attached to the Median court. We know when we read Daniel, they were experts in interpreting dreams because Darius the king sends for them when he has a dream, right? And so these are the religious people, the religious leaders in the state religion of Persia. And it was this weird dual capacity where civil and political counsel were then invested with religious authority in that, in that empire, in the Persian empire. So when Daniel rises to power in the book of Daniel, he's given the title Rob Mag, M-A-G, the Magus, right? He's the top Magus. He's the leader of the whole group of the chief of the Magi, Magi right? And so um, his career, we know Daniel's career, uh, spanned two world empires, the Babylonian empire and then the Persian empire. And then, um, so, so 
we know that when Daniel, as a Jew, was appointed over the Magi, that's what precipitated some of the, that's how he ended up in the lion's den, right? Because all these Persian Magi were like, we're not going to have a Jewish guy over our group of religious leaders. So they're trying to find a way to get him killed, right? This is, you can't pray to your God anymore. Hey, Darius, make a rule. He can't pray to God anymore. And Daniel prays to God and he ends up in the lion's den, right? You know the story, right? Do I need to break out the flannel graph with the little lions and the whole deal? Yeah, go home and read Daniel. And, um, and then the question I get all the time is why were there only three of them? Well, that's actually inaccurate. And it's a tradition based probably on the three gifts that are mentioned here in Matthew's gospel. The gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh were also prophetic gifts, Gold speaks of Jesus' kingship. Frankincense was a spice used in the priestly duties. And myrrh was an embalming ointment signifying his death, the reason that he was born in the first place. And we can be sure that the entourage was far greater than simply three wise men. To travel so far through treacherous deserts riddled with bandits and murderous clans would require great hosts for the sake of safety, especially when you consider their appearance, regal, right? And their cargo, which is very very uh, wealthy and very uh, worth a great deal of money. So verse three, Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Because in Jerusalem, think about it, right? They're under Roman rule and they've got a king who's not even Jewish, Herod. And the sudden appearance of the Magi, probably traveling in force with a caravan and every imaginable pomp of oriental uh, society and accompanied by adequate military escort to ensure their safe arrival would, would certainly alarm Herod and the populace. They see this entourage coming in, right, to the city. It, it might have seemed to them as if these magi were attempting to perpetrate a border incident, could bring a swift reprisal from the Parthian enemies, their, their enemies, the army there. Um, the request of Herod, they say, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? So some people believe that that's a calculated insult because Herod was a non-Jew who had contrived and bribed his way into that office. So it's almost like a slap in the face. Where's the one who's actually born king of the Jews? We know you're not. Right? You, you bribed your way into office and you're not even Jewish. But I don't, I don't really see that in the text or ascribe that motive to them. Uh, consulting the scribes, Herod discovered the prophecies in the Tanakh and the Old Testament that the promised one, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And hiding his concern, right, for his own power and expressing some sincere interest, Herod requests that they keep him informed. So let's look at the prophecy, Micah 5.2. This is the one they go to, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders find this prophecy in Micah 5.2. It says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So this insignificant little backwater town. From you shall come forth for, for me, one who's to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So they've journeyed to Jerusalem and they've ascertained the specific location of the birth of Messiah. And so let's talk about what it cost them to respond to God's revelation. Because again, we, we said this earlier, the decisions we make to pursue something in life are always costly. It always costs us something. So here's the cost. In order to respond to the revelation that they've been given, I would suggest it costs them at least three things. At least three things. It costs them comfort. It costs them their comfort. There were dangers as they traveled. We've already mentioned the bands of thieves, large raiding parties that preyed upon travelers in the desert. And then there were the wild animals 
that would wait till nightfall and people were asleep and they would drag people away from the camp to, to kill and eat them, right? So, so comfort, uh, the, the fact that they're traveling through deserts with little or no water, no vegetation, all they have are their provisions that they've brought, trusting that that's going to see them through a journey that they don't even really know quite where they're going. Uh, they're traveling by caravan uh, having faith that their camels are not going to get sick and die along the way. And there, at least there were no flat tires at that point, I think. Um, the, just the smell of camel as we travel, right? For, for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. So, so I think we can safely say that it costs them their comfort. Uh, it costs them time. They were giving up whatever they had going on back at home to leave that, to put it all on hold and go find out what this thing was about. Right? They're going on a long journey to an unknown location. So they can't say, we'll be back in three weeks. They're just going in faith. They're going in faith. They don't know how long they'll be gone. because They don't know how long it'll take to get there and then subsequently to get back. They don't know how long they'll stay. So they're giving up their time. And then they're giving, their decision to, to give these things up has caused them to have Focus. It's caused them to have focus. And we don't know what other things they could have been doing if they had stayed home. We don't know what other things they gave up in order to go on this journey. But the thing about having focus is that you have to say no to other things in order to keep your focus, right? And they were watching the stars. They were looking up for a sign in the heavens, which is important later. And they saw the sign. They saw this sign in the heavens and they recognized based on what they saw in the sky that the promised one of Israel, the Messiah, had been born. And so they responded to that truth to which they had been exposed, they, they saw it, they were alert, they were watching, they were waiting, and when it happened, they responded to God's revelation. Um, I, I love that kind of focus. I want that kind of focus when it comes to the gospel and, and to, the, to the kingdom and the priorities of God, right? I, I love, uh, I heard this story this week of Polycarp, who's one of our early church fathers. He was the bishop of Smyrna, which is in Asia Minor, and uh, the Roman authorities came and they, they arrested Polycarp and they told him to curse Christ and denounce his faith in Jesus and to worship the emperor. And, uh, and if he would just do that, they would release him. They'd let him go. And he said, this is what Polycarp said. He said, 86 years I have served Jesus and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The Roman officer replied, unless you change your mind and recant, I will have you burned at the stake and Polycarp said this. This is focus, folks. This is what focus is. Unless, um, it says, you, excuse me, you threaten with a fire that burns for an hour and after is quenched. You are ignorant of the judgment to come and everlasting punishment reserved for the ungodly. Do what you wish. I will not recant. That's focus. That's focus. That's giving some things up because the payoff over here for this thing that I'm focused on, that's going to be better. It's going to be bigger. Yeah, this is going to be costly, but I'm focused. I'm focused. And those generations of Christ followers that have preceded us, they knew that following Jesus was costly, right? It costs something. Our brothers and sisters around the world, even at this very hour, can testify to how costly it is to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is costly. Uh, this other story I read this week, five-year-old Mary, precious little girl, was in a very serious accident. 
And as a result of her injury, she was forced to undergo an operation and she'd lost so much blood that it was necessary to give her a transfusion in order to save her life. And as they're searching for a suitable, compatible donor for the blood, um, they discovered that her little brother, Jimmy, was an exact match. And Jimmy was probably five, right? And, and the, so the doctors came to Jimmy and he's sitting there and said, will you be willing to give your sister some of your blood, Jim? And he clenched his little teeth for a moment and he looked up at the doctor and he said, yes, sir, if she needs it, I will do it. And so they, they took little Jimmy and they prepped him, right, for the operating room and they got him ready and he's on the table. And uh, as they're drawing his blood and, and p- putting together the transfusion, getting ready, putting the needle in and getting him ready, and the, now the blood's flowing out of his body now. The doctor observed that precious little Jimmy was laying there on the table. He looked really pale, unusually pale. And there were tears streaming down his little eyes. And the doctor said, are you feeling sick, Jimmy? No, sir. I'm just scared. And I don't know when the moment is coming when I'm going to die. And the doctor said, die? (laughs) Did you think that when people give up some of their blood like this, that they die? And Jimmy, still laying there with tears streaming, said, yes, sir. And the doctor said, and yet you were willing to give up your blood for your sister so that she could live. And another little nod from Jimmy. And now the doctors and the nurses were crying. They were all in tears, right? Precious, precious, sweet story. Following Jesus is costly. It's costly. When it's something that likely could cost you your life, do you embrace it? Or do you run from it? And I don't know that we, uh, in 21st century Western culture, often think of the call of Jesus Christ to the Christian life and to discipleship as costly in that way. I don't know that we think like that, but we should, because it's precisely what Jesus said about following him. Luke 14, he says this, if anybody comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now this is, let me stop, this is hyperbole to make a point. Jesus is not telling us to hate our family, but he's saying compared to our love and devotion to Jesus, the way that we love our family will look like hate to them at times because we'll choose him over them. He's more important. The cost is greater, right? He goes on to say, for which of you desiring to build a great tower would not first sit down and count the cost? whether you have enough to complete it. Otherwise, when you've laid the foundation and you get it half built and you're unable to finish, everybody who sees you is going to mock you saying, that guy wasn't even able to finish what he started. Right? You don't want to be mocked. So you sit down. You, you give some thought to this. Is it worth my time? Do I have what it takes to get this job done and be able to fully invest myself? This is costly, right? Or what king going out to encounter another king in war would not first sit down and deliberate whether he with his 10,000 is able to meet that other king who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, if in the process this king goes, yeah, this is not going to go well for us, doesn't he go while the other king's a great way off? He sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. He's counted the cost. He's thought about this. He's weighed what it's going to cost him to do it or to not do it, right? And, And so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, 
Is Jesus saying, I want you to go with a life of austerity and sell all your possessions and, and be poor and live in a tent? That's not, that's not what he said. He's, Jesus is saying a lot in these simple illustrations. He's quickly putting an end to the idea that he offered any kind of welfare program. Although the gift of eternal life is free to all who ask, the asking requires a transfer of ownership. Counting the cost means and rec- recognizing and agreeing to some terms in following Christ because we can't just follow our own inclinations anymore. We don't belong to us. We can't follow him the way the world does. Following him means we may lose relationships. We may lose our dreams, the things that we thought we wanted in life. We may lose material things. We might even lose our own lives. But the payoff at the end is worth the cost. Those who are following Jesus for what they can get from him, they they tend not to stick around when the going gets tough. When, When God's way conflicts with our way, if that's our motive is to get what we can from Jesus now, then we, we tend to uh, feel betrayed in those moments by our shallow me first faith, right? If we've not counted the cost of being his disciple, we turn away at the threat of sacrifice and we find something else to gratis, gratify, to gratify our selfish desires. In Jesus' earthly ministry, you just watch the times when the free food stopped flowing, public opinion went down, right? And so the cheering crowds become jeering crowds and Jesus knew that would happen in advance. Jesus ended his description of the cost of discipleship with this breathtaking statement here in Luke. He says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So renouncing means we give up something physically, but more often what it means is that we let go emotionally. We let go emotionally so that what we possess does not possess us. We're open-handed. So it's all yours, Lord. I belong to you. Do what you want to do because it's It's all going to be worth it. The the payout at the end is worth the cost. Are we willing to pay to follow Jesus? What are we willing to give up in order to gain that kind of focus on Christ this Christmas? It's the most ironic thing that the celebration every year that we set aside for Jesus and his birth is one of the most distracting things that takes our focus away from him. It's just crazy. This is supposed to be about the God of the universe becoming a human being to gain for us salvation and a right relationship with the living God and it's become about stuff. We need that focus on Christ this Christmas. For some of you, it may mean making time this Christmas to to visit some of those, quotation marks, difficult family members, difficult neighbors. I I look around the room and see see the grins. That's an indication that you know exactly who I'm talking about in your life, right? Um, for For all of us, it means the focus on Christ this Christmas will mean that we choose to be inconvenienced for the sake of others. We choose that. Crazy enough, the inconvenience of ministry is one of the five core values of Emmaus Road Church. We talk about that all the time, that ministry is, by definition, inconvenient. Are you going to focus on Jesus this Christmas? Are you willing to count the cost of Christmas in order to see Christ glorified this year? You know, Micah 2, that that, uh, prophecy about where Jesus would be born is actually a bigger prophecy than just verse 2. 
I want to read you the larger context of the prophecy this morning because I think it, what it does is it ties us in our present moment back into what God was telling us in advance. So listen to Micah 5, 2, verses 2 through 5. So chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from, for me, one who's ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now, that's a pretty consistent word picture all through scripture, speaking of the end times, like until she who's in birth has given, she who's in labor gives birth, then the rest of his brothers, who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus, his brothers, right? The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So Israel's reconciled to God in the end. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they all shall dwell secure. For now he will be great to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. He will be their peace. It's so funny, we sang that song. There's a couple of Christmas songs that I, uh, in my arrogance would presume to rewrite some lyrics as what's the song um and man at war with man hears not the love song which they sing what song is that that's uh it came up no is that is that it yeah it came upon a midnight clear right yeah okay yeah man at war with man hears not the love song which the angels sing right and it's not because man's at war with man that we don't hear the gospel message man's Man's opposed to God. Only a few saw the star. Only those who were looking. Only those who were paying attention. They were focused on the Lord. They were focused on what he was doing. They were counting the cost in order to pursue Messiah. So just ask you again this morning, are we a people who are looking up with expectation? Are we a people who are longing to see Jesus this Christmas? And are we willing to put aside other things that might distract us from that pursuit so that we can see Jesus? Following Jesus will cost you, but it's a cost that's so incredibly small compared to the surpassing glory of what will be when we are with him in glory. If you could just see the payoff, if you have vision for what's coming, the cost now will seem so small, so small.